Welcome to the Give Yourself the Chat podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lewis, and this is the show dedicated to unlocking human potential and living a life of high performance. So, hello everyone, welcome to Give Yourself the Chat, another episode, another fascinating guest with me. I've got a man called Dan Munro who joins me from the Czech Republic, but originally hails from New Zealand. Dan, um, hello, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well at the moment, mate. As we were just talking about before, I'm shorts, bare feet, relax. It's a good day. <laughs> that is a, so shorts, bare feet. So um, for the for the benefit of those just listening, where this is being recorded, obviously um, over Zoom, so you'll be able to see on YouTube. But uh, Dan and I um, have sort of similar interests. Well, we have an awful lot in common, actually. We, we both work in the coaching world, um, but we've come at that uh, that world from very different. Um, experiences, I guess. Dan, you were formerly a parole officer working with uh, uh, the incarcerated, I guess, and the rehabilitation of, of them. And you now find yourself working in Czech Republic with clients all over the world. I mean, you, I think you've got US, UK. It's amazing, isn't it? We were talking off air how I think pandemic has really, it's presented an opportunity for people like us to to really sort of leverage technology and, and reach more people, which is, which is pretty awesome, eh? Yeah, that's, I think that's probably one of the greatest benefits is, you know, you can fit a certain number of people into a hall, but the internet's limitless. You could lead thousands, hundreds of thousands in a single conversation. I'm not doing that, but I could, you know. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think the, the old school beliefs that you have to be face-to-face to have an impact on someone to, to move them and to, to help them change it's a fallacy. It's, it's simply not true. You, the, the principles of leadership apply regardless of the context, I yeah. think. So I was put to the test. I was kind of forced to make that work before the pandemic when I changed countries and my business model had to change for me to survive. And then I just never had a reason to go back from that. It's always mm. worked out. Well, I can still do in-person stuff and I like it. It's yeah. good to be able to hug someone after a session or whatever, but yeah, necessary. It, what the interesting also things are changing, and it's not just for coaches and trainers, but but you've mentioned leaders. This idea, I think, employees and team members have got used to this now. They are, you know, it's it's it is the new normal. It's here. So going back to the way we used to do things, I think people would just sort of question more. Why why would we have to? just from an environmental impact, get 100 people in a room just for the sake of meeting when we can do that virtually and get other stuff done as well. I, I think we're going to see a, an increasing pressure from employees to to make this new work rather than switching back, which I think I'm encouraged by, if only from an environmental impact, I think. I, I hope that's what happens because you, you're really hard put to make an empirical argument for commuting and stuffing people into an office building now there's really socially environmentally there's no good argument for it that isn't based on old dogma yeah these days this is what i think i I put that message out there to my audience like if you're an employee and you've made working at home work insist upon it yeah you know make them give you a reason why you have to come in that makes you more productive because the research shows the opposite people spend about four to six hours of their workday, basically unproductive if they're in the office, whereas they can uh, kind of double their productivity if they're at home and relaxed and doing things at their own pace. But it's that old school view, like you've got to watch the employees for them to work. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, you don't. They want to do good jobs, most of them. And if they don't, they should bounce and move on to something else until they do. You know? Well, this is interesting because I know we're going to explore a lot around you know, the scripts that we run and old dogma and challenging that, and particularly our own sort of limiting beliefs uh, or, or the bullshit that we kind of tell ourselves. So, but we'll dive into that. But it's interesting. I, I've got a coaching client who was offline and had a, a massive aversion to allowing his staff to work from home, complete distrust of it. And now working with him through pandemic, he's personally come around, he said, I love this. I love the fact I can work from home and everything else. So I said, so how do you feel about your staff doing the same? But he still couldn't get over that. He still had that trust. So well, it works for me and I can trust me, but I can't trust them yet. And I thought we've still got some work to do here, I think. Yeah, well, I think it brings up the sort of category of probably the most unhelpful limiting beliefs. And that's that the ones that come under the umbrella of being judgmental without mm. being, you know, fairly based on evidence and thinking I would work hard if I'm alone, but others won't without anything to base that on just coming up with it, that kind of entitlement. Uh, it's amazing how many business businesses shoot themselves in the foot by insisting on doing something based on judgments when they'd actually do a lot better off if they did it based on, on reason and evidence and tested these ideas, you know, yeah. see what actually happens when you try it. Well, that's it. And so therefore back to your point about the employees insisting that look, here the, here's the evidence, here's the work I've done. You give me a compelling argument why it shouldn't, we shouldn't either come up with a hybrid or something different. And I think it's a really difficult position to run. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? That whole sort of judgment of, of others. I, I forget why I read it. I think it was in one of Simon Sinek's book. He talks about uh, abstraction bias and the example of, you know, you're in the, in the supermarket and, and you raise your voice with, with your kids because they're being unruly. And, and in your mind, it's because of, you know, you're not feeling particularly good or they've been really pressing your buttons or there's, there's something that, but if you see somebody else doing it, it's like, well, they're a bad mum, They're yeah. a bad father, you know, and, and that sort of abstraction bias and that judgment that we don't apply to ourselves, which I, I know there's, this kind of really touches on a lot of the work that, that you do as well and helping people sort of, you challenge their limiting beliefs, but also see the opportunities that, that may be in front of it. Give, give us a sense of the work that you do, Dan. I'm fascinated because there's, there's parallels, but there's, I'm sure there's a lot of differences perhaps with your approach. Yeah, well, I was just thinking then, I was kind of prompted by Nietzsche a little bit. There's an old quote of his, which I, I'm going to misquote because I can't remember word for yeah, word. go for it. <laughs> uh, basically, you know, the worst lies are the ones we tell ourselves. The ones we tell others are relatively exceptional. Um, most of the time we think we're telling someone else the truth, but it's based on a lie that we believe internally. It's one of the most fundamental things I had to get my head around before I made my big changes was that I can lie to myself and I have been for quite some time. I've in fact created a whole fantasy world in my head based on nothing, it's fiction. Uh, and it rules most of my decision-making. I'm starting with that as a platform, so all my decisions are faulty. And that was really, really hard for me to accept because no one else had really done that to me. That was my reaction to situations I couldn't handle when I was younger and so on. I created these childlike, immature strategies based on deception and dishonesty. People-pleasing was my main one. And then I just carried it on. But in adulthood, I'm making all these poor decisions based on this framework. And I'm doing it in my own head by myself. There's no one to blame here. Yeah. 
uh, but I couldn't see it. I was blind to it. When you lie to yourself, you kind of know what's happening, but you kind of don't. It's a really bizarre experience. You'll know it whenever you have to talk yourself into doing something you know is wrong, like eating the rest of the chocolate cake. There's a great little example there. You watch yourself tell a story, oh, I deserve it. You know, it's been a hard week. I've already started eating it, so I might as well. Yeah. It's just, it's just like the lawyer in your brain comes out and argues for it. And the funny thing is when you're being truthful and authentic, there's no argument required. It's just the right thing to do. Yeah. That's it. But when you have to tell yourself a big story, minimizing certain points, justifying things, you're watching yourself lie to yourself. One part of you knows you're doing it. The other part's actually being lied to and convinced. It's like a whole committee in there arguing. Yeah. And then you end up with, you know, for me, after doing that for decades, I ended up with a life that was a lie, a personality that was a lie. The whole, everything was bullshit. And I, I think we were talking about it offline. I just woke up one day and just went, what am I doing? Who am I? I don't know yeah. what the hell's going on anymore. I feel like I've been dropped into someone's life with no context. It's bizarre. So, so was that, we say you sort of woke up, but was it a gradual awakening or was there some sort of event in your life that really was like, do you know what? That's it. No more. I mean, it was a series of those. Mm. Uh, each one kind of rocked the, the paradigm a little bit more. Um, I remember one, you know, for, for me, I really struggled with women in particular when, when I was younger because I was, I was just so nice, such a people pleaser as a strategy to fit in. Yeah. Um, but that means I was just friends with everybody and nothing more. And I was with this girl once and I was doing this thing I used to do a lot, which is self-deprecating humor. I'd make fun of myself, which made people laugh. I was the funny guy. That was yeah. my thing. Yeah. And everybody thought I was naturally funny, but inside my head, it's all strategy and gears turning, you know. And I was doing that and she just looked at me and she's like, that's pathetic. I was like, whoa, that's whoa. a harsh thing for a people pleaser to hear, you know, like yeah. that's my, my nightmare as a girl saying something like that to me. And she said, no, no, you're funny and it's kind of charming, but I know you mean it. And that like, it's like, ugh. And she was right. These jokes weren't really jokes. They mm. were self-loathing disguised as humor. And you can see this with some stand-up comedians. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they just make you cringe because yeah. they mean it they're actually depressed yeah. or whatever so i had moments like that where somebody just kind of got through my armor a little bit and poked the wound kind of thing just went you're full of shit and it started like it's not like the next day i was a different person but i stopped talking to her because i was so uncomfortable with that truth that she brought up and that discomfort sat with me and events would happen that really didn't go my way and just felt like I was so miserable and these pockets of evidence or feedback would come through saying, you're doing this to yourself. Mm. This is you. You set this up. You followed through on it. Now here's your result. You earn this. And I think I was about the age of 25, something like that. When I had my big sort of accumulation of, built up. I just, I don't know what set it off. I just woke up three o'clock in the morning one night and just said, fuck this. I can't, not anymore. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't be like this anymore. I can't do the rest of my life like this. The burden's too, it's too heavy, too strenuous to just put on this act all the time. And that's when I started searching like, well, what else could I do? What I never looked before. So it's interesting. The, 
So it's the accumulation of events. And, and I guess it can be the accumulation of events over a, could be quite a protracted period of time, but there must be some sort of store in us that it gets to a point, and for all of us, it's a different point. Um, and some of us have to experience real pain before we make a change, and other people will probably change, you know, with, with less so. But that, that idea of, in isolation, the comments might hurt, but actually they don't really have that much until they're kind of stacked. It's almost like a stacking of, okay, I'm hearing this enough time. So it's, it's how soon do we wake up to that? Because you can wake up to it really quickly and make change and bang, and others are asleep to it their entire life. So I wonder why that is. I mean, why, why do some people wake up to it and others don't? I mean, you've, you've got it, the experience with, as a parole officer and working with the incarcerated and, and the criminal sort of community and, and rehabilitation. When do they wake up to it? Where, you know, where, what do you notice about that moment where in others when they've made that switch or turned on to it? Yeah, we often talked about crisis when I was doing rehabilitation. I think that's the right word for it. Um, you have to have this crisis and it's, it can be an external thing. You lose your house, you get divorced, whatever, major injury. But really all those do is prompt the internal crisis that's needed, the emotional crisis, the I can't do this anymore crisis. Um, it's different for everyone, but the theme is that the pain of staying the same becomes worse than the potential pain of mixing it up and changing things. And that's what happened for me, like being a nice guy, people pleaser worked pretty well for me in terms of instant gratification and approval from others. Sure. It slowly stopped working as well, or at least the rewards didn't feel that rewarding anymore. The high kind of wore off as I got into my 20s. And that's what built up the crisis was eventually, it's like a drug addict who doesn't even get high anymore. There's nothing good happening. Just no, there's no pleasure anywhere to be found. Mm. Um, no deep inner pleasure. I mean, there's like highs, but there's no kind of, I like who I am. This is a good life. I wouldn't trade with anyone. There's none of that. Yeah. Um, this is why I do what I do is because a lot of the work is trying to help people have the crisis. You know, a lot of people, when they come to me, it's what I call the front door problem. It's what they think is wrong in their life. You know, they say, oh, you know, my, my, my wife's not talking to me properly or, you know, I, I don't like my career or whatever it is they say. I'm like, yeah, 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 let's get down to what it really is. And, and we dig in and I'm looking for where do you breach your own integrity? Where do you let yourself down? Where do you do what you believe is wrong? No matter who else approves of it, you know, where have you sacrificed who you are to get some instant reward or to fit in or whatever it is? And, and that's what we look for. And then what I help them do is have the crisis by going, well, how's behaving like that worked out for you? What is it doing to you? How do you feel when you see yourself internally and so on? Um, and it, this is what I used to do with criminals. Like one of my favorite ones is the kind of two hands approach. You say like, okay, so you want to be a gang member. You want the patch on your back and the big Harley and you want to beat the shit out of people every other day. And you say you also want to be a good father. Yeah. So how do those two things reconcile? How is your son watching you be that guy come under the banner of good father? And I'm just asking. Yeah. What I've picked up on is this guy's actually in breach of his own values here. He hated the way his dad was. And yet he's being his dad right now. Mm. 
And I just help them see that. And I go, well, what are you going to do with that information? You're being a guy you hate. How, help me understand. How do you make that work for yourself? What do you have to tell yourself to be able to you know, sleep at night? And of course, a lot of these people can't. <laughs> they literally well, yeah. can't sleep at yeah. night because they but I guess it's the tension of holding those existing parts. And, you know, it must be really quite hard work. And we all experience it. You've got to satisfy that part of them that wants to be the gang member and whatever. And, and uh, you know, the Harley Davidson kicking the shit out of people. And, and then there's going home to be a good father. That's really tense. And I guess when people realize that, there's that tension kind of washes away. But I think you have to reconcile or legitimize both parts of self. It's... Uh, and yeah. I guess the work that you're doing there is there, there's some positive behavior or positive, there's a payoff, isn't there, for wanting to be that part. And there's a payoff of wanting to be the great father. And, and I guess some of the work must start with, well, what's the motivation of those those parts of yourself and, and recognizing that? It's interesting you use the word create the crisis. So, so you talk about creating the crisis in a sort of controlled experiment type of way rather than having to live the, live out the crisis. Yeah, crisis doesn't have to mean like living in a bus stop and shooting heroin. You know, it's yeah. crisis can just be quite often. It, uh, my clients describe it as like dying, because who they thought they were comes under heavy scrutiny, and mm. they see all the holes in the plot kind of thing. You know, one of the biggest ones I used to do with criminal offenders was like, you tell me that you're basically a good person, and most of them did tell me that. Very few of them want to be the bad guy. The ones yeah. who are, they need to be locked up forever because yeah, they yeah, have like actual evil. Yeah, the psychopaths and you know the sadists. But most of them are just like, I'm a good person. I have to do these behaviors. Society's forced me, whatever. It's, it's only fear, revenge, et cetera. And I'd say, well, okay, so you say you're a good person and then you do this and you do this and you do this. If somebody else did those things, would you say they're a good person? So what does good person mean? And so on. And you just... And this is the same, this is what my breakthrough really came from, was watching criminal behaviors bullshit to me about how they're a good person and going, man, that's what I sound like. Mm. like that's me talking to myself I'm hearing right now. That's what I tell other people. That I'm, I'm hearing myself speak. And I thought, you know, I talked about in one of my books how we're all criminals. And what I mean by that is the same thought processes they go through to commit crimes are the ones we go through to cheat on our partners or overeat or blow our money or put up with a shit job. None of these things are illegal, but they're very, very harmful. Mm. Some of them should be illegal. Can you imagine if you weren't allowed to lie to your partner by law? You know, But you are. You can totally string them along for years and steal their whole life away if you want, and there'll be no legal recourse for that. You know, But you steal their car and you go to jail. I used to think that was quite bizarre what we've made illegal because you can harm someone quite legally and that's what i had to face is like i'm actually quite a harmful person and if someone else behaved the way i do if i knew that they were doing that lying to their face and manipulating them and stuff i would think their behavior was awful you mentioned it i can't remember if it was when we we're talking offline or, or now you know somebody sort of yelling at their kids at the supermarket and they yeah. think this is justified because my kid's been this, this, and this. They yeah. see someone else doing it. Oh, what a horrible parent. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, dude, it's the same behavior. So how do you feel about the behavior? Not the story, but the behavior. You know, somebody gets cut in front of you in traffic. You're like, he must be a dick. You cut in front of traffic. So I'm late for my meeting. I need to, you know. Yeah. 
hey, the cutting in is the behavior. Are you actually cool with the behavior? It's it's interesting, yeah. So that that sort of uh, attribution bias. But you reminded me of um, I'm a big fan of uh, Ryan Holiday and and his mm-hmm. sort of model interpretation of stoicism and and things like that. And I, I love the stoic philosophy. Um, you can see behind me, I've got Marcus Aurelius quotes and all sorts of stuff. But it's such a yeah, practical thing. But fan. yeah, well, uh, one of Ryan's recent um, uh, videos um, was it's just in the car. He was talking about. You know, when you when somebody pulls to your point, when somebody pulls in front of you and you get really angry at them, he said, Have you ever noticed how ridiculous you look when you're angry? Mm. You know, why would you want to sustain that? And and why would you assume that you're any better than that person that's just cut in front of you? And it's you know, that that there could be a million and one reasons why they've done that, and yet you've decided to waste energy and look absolutely ridiculous, contorting your face and just and it doesn't help at all. It doesn't solve it. And yet we very easily just fall into those without challenging ourselves. So um, what, what do you think is that? Because when, when you said about when clients come to you and they say, hey, look, I've got a problem with this. And you're like, okay, right. Yeah, I can't wait to get to the real problem. It's the same when people come to me and, and it might be, I, you know, I've got to work on my productivity. I've got to work on my relationships. And, and I think I always nod politely. So yeah, let's get to work. And you know, within two or three sessions, you're going to have to go deep. Mm-hmm. So when we go deep for you, what is it that you find has the greatest effect on creating this crisis and the awakening for the people that you're working with? It's different for each person. Each, each person has a kind of, I call it their X factor. It's this thing that if you leverage it, they can make the biggest changes. But usually it revolves around what I've come to call core values. Mm which I got from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's different to say virtues like in stoicism, like four things that everyone should live by. Yeah. Core values are more your own version. You, you decide what the rules are. And what, we're, what I'm looking for in terms of the X factor is what's the one value that they hold in really high esteem but almost never live by? Where's that big mismatch? I call it the authenticity gap, the difference between who you know you should be and who you're actually being. You know, the bigger that gap is, the more miserable you are, essentially. Yeah. And so, like, let's say for somebody, I, I often ask a question, like, who do you admire and why do you admire them? And, and they'll give me whatever, their role models and so on. When I, I ask, I use the word admire very carefully because admire means looking up to someone, as in different to respect where you're looking across at a peer. Admire is that person doing something I'm not. Mm. as respect is they're doing something I also do and agree with. And so I asked them, you know, what do they admire, who they look up to, inspired by, so on. Cause I'm, what I'm trying to hear is like, what are you not doing that you know you should be? Mm. And I'm, I'm looking for it at a core value level. Like, is it honesty? Are you being dishonest a lot? Is it courage? Are you being a coward a lot? Mm. Is it acceptance? Do you fight against reality a lot or, is it responsibility? Do you blame a lot instead of taking ownership? What is your core value that like, it's like my coach says, it's always a recurring problem. You'll find it dating back to the beginning. It's always been there as the main kind of thorn in the side. And, and dishonesty was mine. You know, that's what I looked at when I looked at my life is I tell myself I'm nice. What I really am is emotionally manipulative. I use niceness to make people like me on false pretenses. They don't really know how I feel or what I really think of them or my true opinions about anything. 
I used to call it being the chameleon. I think there's even a word called the chameleon effect. It's like a, a behavior. Yeah. I would just adjust it, whoever I was talking to, to be exactly what they want me to be. And I was like, that's, that's not being nice. That is like, that is ruthless Machiavellian level manipulation. Now I don't harm them with it. I'm just trying to make them like them. So I don't panic. You know, it's just a loneliness thing. I'm not yes. stealing their money or doing anything like that, but does it matter if I'm not doing those things? I'm still lying. And most of the people I work with, I'd say probably because of the stuff I put out there around honesty, that's their main problem. They're living a lie. They're pretending to be someone that they aren't. They've been doing it for so long that it's become what they think is their personality. You know, you can do something for decades and it's never true. Mm. Doesn't The persistence doesn't make it any more true. You can pretend to be something for a long time without making it real. And uh, that's what I'm looking for. Like, where's the pretense in this person's life? Because that's the real source of their suffering. So there's that... Like a, yeah, yeah that, that you mentioned that sort of people pleaser thing. I mean, how much of this is just we have that this facade is a protection in some way. I mean, to 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 uphold and and letting that down is it takes a lot of courage and and you've really got to be open to vulnerability. Well, you've got to be open to accept the fact that actually you know you've told yourself this lie. Mm. And then you've got to be courageous enough to keep that guard down. Because one of the things I'm, I'm ex- interested in exploring with you is there's one thing to be, become aware of it and think, yeah, I've been a complete dick or I just haven't been honest with myself. But then how do we sustain that level of openness and, and courage and vulnerability without going back to type? It's like any, any habit, I guess. It's so easy to snap back and they might have a good week, but... What, what have you found? And I guess this kind of speaks to the, sort of the theme of this podcast and give yourself the chat, the, the practical reality of, okay, you've got the awareness, but then the, the work is to be done. How do you help people stick at it? The beautiful thing is I don't have to, because once they start doing it and they get a taste for it, yeah. it's, it's a door that once you open, you can't close. You know, you can keep lying to yourself for a long time, but once you started being honest, dishonesty will be glaringly obvious to you from there on out. You'll know you're doing it and it won't sit right with you. Mm. So you can relapse and you can go back, but it'll hurt a lot more because now you're doing so with full awareness. Mm. It's kind of like knowing that overeating causes you harm and actually thinking about it while you eat. It's very hard to keep eating when you think about it. You have to be unaware. Yeah. For me, the, the breakthrough is understanding that you don't have to go from zero to 10 you just go from zero to one and you acclimate to that and you go from one to two. So somebody's like, what? So I just tell all my employees that secretly I'm burnt out and scared of their disapproval. So, well, maybe not right out of the gate, but maybe you choose one employee that you have the closest connection with and you sit them down and you tell them a little bit more than you usually would. And you just see how it feels. You just give yourself no obligation or pressure to continue this beyond what you're happy to do mm. um, because almost immediately you'll start to have experiences that just shatter your belief that being dishonest is necessary. You know, I, uh, there's one of my key ones. I remember confronting a group of people at my work who were backstabbing someone. They're having like a gossipy lunch, you know, that one of those sort of things. And 
I felt this urge. I, I'd just been focusing on all this honesty stuff. I thought this is this is my moment. You know, this yeah. is where I usually join in. I'm, I'm yeah. going to and and I just cut in like, yeah, it was just so awkward. Uh, I just cut in and said, "Look, guys, would you say this if they're in the room? Because if not, this is not very cool." And it was just like dropping a bomb. It was just so uncomfortable. And this is what people predict will happen, and that's what stops them. Mm. But I just mm. sat there and was uncomfortable instead of trying to fix it. And then I'll never forget it. They all started lighting up red. They were embarrassed. At first, I thought they were embarrassed for me. I was like, okay, I've made a big scene here. But then they started to go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that, blah, blah. And I realized they're embarrassed of themselves. Yeah. And they're behaving. Because it's epiphany for me. Like, oh, I've actually helped them by doing this. Mm. You know, and so you have, you start to have evidence because this is what your emotional brain needs to see. You can't convince your emotional brain to be honest. It has to see that it's okay to do. It has to see proof and feel proud of yourself and so on for you to go, yeah, I can do that again. Well, what's the next hit? Um, and you just choose a small thing that you think you can handle and just run a little test. And if you and like guess, it, do it again. Yeah, well, that's it. So you, you get feedback. And, you know, in that moment there, that would have really sort of bolstered your sense of courage and identity. And you think, okay, well, that works. I'll do it again. And it's, it's that sort of aggregation and compounding effect. But it's interesting. My, my question to you was, how do you make it stick? And you very rightly said, well, it's because we're working on the deeper stuff. And it's like, once you know, you know the taste of that cake is never going to taste the same, or you're going to, you're going to, be consciously violating everything that you hold dear if you go against it. Whereas, you know, initially when that person comes to you and say, I've got this product, product, productivity issue here or whatever, you know, that's the surface stuff. It's the surface stuff that we, we often default back to because there's no consequence, there's no pain. But once you reveal and open the door onto that self-awareness, then it, yeah, you're right. It really is hard to, to step back on it. But equally, I think people have to recognize there is that journey, that incremental step piece, because if you try and bite off too much, you'll either get, you'll either get burned and that'll just retrench you even further back. So, well, I've tried it, it didn't work. So it, it's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. What, what do you think it means for this, this work around values and everything else like that? Um, what do you think it means for, for leadership in, in this particular environment? We talked off air about pandemic and, and how you and I as coaches are sort of really reveling in the opportunity to, to reach thousands of people if well, we could, but you know, you know, what, what does it mean for those that are in leadership positions or leading teams and this idea of values and vulnerability and, and that sort of courageous position, what, what kind of advice do you think we can share with them for that? Well, you know, right now, I think we've got two great role models to help us look into this. Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, Donald Trump, President of the United States. What we've essentially got are polar opposites in terms of honesty. I don't, I don't have any political leanings. I don't really care, actually. But I just find people fascinating in terms of leadership. Mm. Donald Trump is a leader based almost entirely on dishonesty. Almost everything that comes out of his mouth is factually incorrect or could be challenged. Jacinda Ardern, as far as politicians go, is about as open and transparent as I've ever seen in my entire life. That doesn't mean she's as honest as she could be, but I don't know what the limits are in politics. But she was doing like Facebook lives from her lounge and just answering questions spontaneously and stuff and just yeah. actually answering them. 
yes. no ducking or dodging. And so I'm just watching this, this messaging of like what you see is what you get versus the performance. And you have no idea what's really going on. And look at the way the two countries respond. Mm. One country is calmly getting through the pandemic safely. Another country is the worst in the world for dealing with it. And I don't think those are random occurrences. Yeah. I think the effect is coming back to my own life. There was this moment as a manager where I was like, I'm going to put this imposter. I just finished reading a book on imposter syndrome. And I was like, I'm going to try this. And in front of a team meeting, I told the team that I was stressed and that I didn't know what I was doing, which was the last thing I wanted to tell them. Right. Yeah. It turns out they already knew anyway. You don't hide stuff as well as you think you do. <laughs> what was amazing was the immediate surge of loyalty and support that I got from them. Mm. They rushed to my aid, essentially. They didn't care that I was weak in the sense that they were like, oh, let's biff him out as the leader. Yeah. They're, they're more like, they're so, I don't know, connected with the honesty I, I kept up. I kept it up. I thought, well, they responded pretty well to that. So I'm just going to start being honest about everything. I even started being honest about the stuff that managers typically lie about. You know, like you tell them there's some new policy and you don't explain why it's happening. I'd just say what's actually happening, what's going on behind the scenes and so on. Yeah. All the stuff you're not supposed to say. The loyalty from the team got to the point where they were being offered like lucrative promotions and turning them down just so they could stay in the team. I'm not saying that's just because of me, but that honest style of leadership created this environment where they're like a family and mm. multiple occasions, usually about three times out of 10, we were the highest performing country uh, team in the country. Yeah. Uh, objectively measured. And I, I absolutely think that's all connected is it's like you and I talking about offline you role model honesty. They all start being honest with each other. They know that they can do it safely without losing their job or being punished. Yeah. You go first. That's the job as the leader. You have yeah. to not say you can do it. You have to show yourself doing it vulnerably or they yes. won't believe it. And then they go. And then because they start to relieve themselves of all the insecurities that come with putting on a performance where they can just be sick or tired or unsure or whatever it is we usually experience. Then, as you and I talked about, I think the default is high performance after that. They're focused. They know what they're supposed to be doing. They don't have to worry about stuff that doesn't matter. They paid more attention to facts than feelings. And they get shit done. Yeah. You know? it, it's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? There's a number of things you talked about there. It's that sort of that safety within the team. And there's, there's, you know, there's authors that we've quoted already. Simon Sinek talks about that circle of safety. Pat Lencioni with his five dysfunctions of a team. And the, you know, the, the baseline is trust and creating, you know, leaders go first, they're vulnerable, they demonstrate, they model the way. And yet it's so, for, so refreshing for everyone, going back to the politician's example, you know, how refreshing it is to, to hear a politician speaking honestly. We all know that works. And yet, going back to the bullshit scripts that we run and those lies that we tell ourselves, we have in our, in our hearts that leaders aren't allowed to be weak. You know, saying I don't know is a weakness. No, it's not. It's a courageous position. I think what is weak is when we say, look, I don't know the answers, but then doing nothing about it. Mm. I often say to my audiences, especially when I work with a lot of leaders, is let's just give up on the hang up about 
wanting to have all the answers. Get better asking the questions. And the only way you get better is by saying, I don't know the answer to this. Right team, what question do we need to ask ourselves? And then automatically it's inclusive. Automatically you demonstrate vulnerability, but equally you're, you're still a sort of front-footed leader because you're taking action. So you can be decisive, you can be strong. In fact, strength comes from that vulnerability in that courageous position. And yet so many people don't get the joke. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think one of the things is the oppressively dishonest global culture that each and every one of us exists in. For you to be honest is an act of leadership because you might be the only one in the room doing it. Mm. That's actually the most likely scenario you'll be in is if you want to be fully honest, you're going to be going first. You're going to be yeah. putting your head above the, the parapet sort of thing. And I mean, you know, the example I gave about catching all these people, a whole group of people being gossipy. And I had to go first because no one else was going to say, hey, we shouldn't be talking like this. Yeah. And that's a really common scenario. It is such an act of courage and leadership to be more honest than everyone else is being. And that's, I think I made a video a while ago, being honest in a dishonest world, where I said, look, here's the kind of hard truth of this. You want to have integrity? you are going to face resistance because most people don't. Not to the level we're talking about. Most people are putting on an act. And by most, I'm talking, what, like 90%, maybe more? Mm. You know, I walk around, I kind of do this thing. I talk about a lot when, when you're lacking self-confidence, all you think about is yourself and you think everybody else has got it sorted and you don't. But you're just not paying attention. If you start yeah. worrying about your own you know, insecurities, and you start actually observing people with some sort of objectivity, you'll see that most people are falling apart. They're barely holding it together. From little signs like someone who can't leave the house without wearing makeup, through to the guy who's always exaggerating his stories, through to the person who only puts on a, you know, good performance when the boss is watching, the person who complains about their family all the time, you'll start to see like most people are actually pretty miserable and kind of putting on a front. It's not that like sophisticated of an act. It's just you don't have to act that hard because most people are so worried about themselves that they're not really paying attention. Um, it's like I said, like when I told the team that I was stressed, the more confident team members like, and? Like it was the most obvious thing in the world. They could see the bags under my eyes. They could see my yeah. snappy irritability and whatever. Yeah. But I thought I was this brilliant performance that nobody could see through, that everyone saw me as this calm, collected, cool guy or whatever. <laughs> It's funny how delusional we are, but um, yeah, it's in my mind, like the, I, I, the simplest definition of leadership I can think of is go first. Mm. Yeah, I think that okay. really sums it up. Like you okay. create a safe space to do it by proving it can be done, not by talking about it, not by asking for it, but doing it. And, and it's amazing how effortless leadership can be because that's kind of all you have to do. You know, they, they want to shine. They want to be good at what they do. They want to perform. You don't have to do it for them. In fact, that would be stealing the glory. You know, I often talk about leading from the back. Like I want, yeah. if my team does really well, I only want people to know about the team, not me. I want them to see the stars. I want, you know, I want the, the Michael Jordans and stuff to stand out. Yeah. to be unleashed and not see that there was the coach behind the scenes 
they just unleash them because they are so, so true. I mean, when I talk about leadership, I often put a, a diagram up on, on a slide when I do use them and it's, it's an inverted triangle. So normally you have the pyramid leader at the top, very sort of autocratic command control, top down, turn it on its head. You're all about just making sure that they have got a paved way to excel because, you know, to your mm-hmm. point, people want to do a great job. They want to have an opportunity. This idea of, um, leaders go for I love that leadership just go first I, I was working with a group recently we just kicked off a, a program and I said to the leader of the organization I said the biggest example you can set is in the in the virtual classroom be the one that asks the questions when I ask for a volunteer stick your hand up and go first and just demonstrate it's safe to do so because until you do they'll all hold back no matter how great you think your culture is um we're almost coming to the end, but I want to explore around this idea of imposter syndrome and that mm-hmm. when you understand that everyone is barely holding it together, how liberating it can be. But in my experience, I'd be interested to know yours as well. Those that suffer imposter syndrome the most tend to be the one with the, the greatest degree of talent and experience and, and the ones that have got it. There's something about imposter syndrome which probably gets worse the better you get, which is sounds quite perverse, but... Yeah. Do you recognize the truth in that statement? Absolutely. And even to the point where, let's say you look at the people who have broken through and just done something incredible, the, the great artists, the great scientists, the ones that seem to be from another species. They just, you know, I think of those really high performers with imposter syndrome as actually being limited. That's the thing. They're doing better than most, but that's not them at their best. And that's, mm. it's kind of almost frightening. I, I work with a lot of creative types. I love working with musicians, chefs, um, dancers. And some of them are at the top of their game. They're winning awards. They've got medals on their chest and everything. But that's them coming from a scared place. Can you imagine if they came from a confident place? And I've seen that. You know, I've seen guy go from like a great opera singer to like an excellent world-renowned opera singer. And he actually already had that in I'm not teaching him how to sing. Yeah, It's just, he was actually muted. And that's, that's what blows my mind. And, you know, I, I used to work with, one of the ways I worked with criminals is I'd actually look at their criminal behavior and pull the strengths out of it. Like you've got to be brave to break into a house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't do it. That takes some, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you got to be brave to be violent. You, you, you have to be like a leader to run a gang. Like you think running a team of office workers is hard. Try running a team of psychopaths who want your job. Yeah. Right? You just stay in that position. You've got to be a very powerful, quite mm. Machiavellian leader, but still powerful. Yeah, sure. You've got to understand human psychology better than most psychologists combined. You know, I meet these guys with tattoos on their face and just knuckles the size of walnuts from all the fights they've been in. And they understand human psychology better than people with like double doctorates. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, that was my problem. My imposter syndrome worked very well for my career. I shot up the ladder. Um, but me being a coach running my own business now and impacting like thousands of people publishing books, that's what was waiting for me. That imposter syndrome was me limited. Like Mm. me climbing the ladder fast was actually a limited performance. Mm. Most of the people I think are actually capable of great performance, but because of the lies they tell themselves, not only are they imposters, but they're in the wrong place. 
you know, how many great chefs are working at a bank, you know, and, and how many fantastic athletes only play basketball once a week on the weekends and so on. You know, there's people who did the job because of the lights. They need to be safe. They need the money. They're blah, blah, blah. It's all bullshit. And if they didn't live by those lies, they'd find the area they're supposed to be in. And you combine that with taking the mask off, which is another way of just unleashing everything you've got, being limitless to whatever your capacity is. That's where you see the greats break through. That's where the Michael Jordans come from, is other people could do it. Uh, hypothetically speaking, potential is there. Yeah, yeah. But they've got the limiter on. And I, yeah. and I believe personally the limit is made of a kind of self-dishonesty. Dan, perfect. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you today. Um, we, you have a global reach, so if people want to get in touch with you, um, how can they do that? I like the personal touch. They can just email me, dan at brojo.org. That's usually where I start. The Brojo community is where I pull everybody in. Um, it's basically a, a community based on trying to live with integrity everybody supports each other to do it and challenges each other and such um so you can come join the crew if you want to check it out it's free to join and uh yeah personal touch that's what i like fantastic dan thank you so much for um your time today you and i could shoot the breeze all, all day um so perhaps we'll, we'll have you back on the podcast a few episodes down the road but for the time being thanks so much for your time yeah thank you appreciate it there you go a slightly longer podcast episode than usual but um, we went to such depth there around what can be a pretty tricky subject sort of facing up to our own self-deceptions and really uncovering our own truth and having the vulnerability and the courage to, to face that and then particularly as leaders facing up to that that truth and being vulnerable with those that we have the privilege to lead so I hope you enjoyed that one I certainly enjoyed my time with Dan um, if you're interested in connecting with me, then the place to do that is at my website, peterlewiscoaching.com. Uh, feel free to shoot me a message as to which guests you'd like to see on the podcast in the future and indeed any subjects you'd like me to explore. But for the time being, thank you very much for being a listener and we'll see you on the next one.